0: Hey, a couple of weeks ago, um, my son, Andrew, and I went to hear our uh, favorite preacher, Jerry Seinfeld. And... um It was fabulous. Um, The the sermon, it was kind of like all over the place. There wasn't really like a theme, which it was hard to follow the theme of the sermon. He did mention God a couple times and I wasn't even sure how that connected to the theme of the sermon. But anyway, during his um, incredible sermon, he he made one great point that I thought was so good, we should do a whole series about it. And he, he made the point that wherever we are, we're never really settled where we are. We're always thinking about what's next. So wherever we are, toward the end of wherever we are, we say, we gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go. In fact, some of you, you're already thinking about you gotta go, and that was his point, and I thought, that's true. Wherever we are, we're never really settled. Um, we're just always thinking, about, always thinking about what's next, what's next, what's next. So um, so this, for the next few weeks, the Pack Your bag series, this is a series about how to prepare to get to where you gotta get to from where you currently are that you just got to from where you recently were that you can't even remember. Okay, so that's what, that's what our theme is, okay? So let's go over this again. No, anyway, the short version of Pack Your Bags, here's what we're gonna talk about for the next few weeks is how to prepare for what's next. Now, hopefully, you have something coming up next that you are uh, looking forward to. You may be slightly nervous, you may feel prepared, unprepared, but hopefully you got something coming up in the next few months or maybe the next year or maybe you've got a three-year window and there's something coming up that you know, you're looking forward to. Maybe um, you got somebody that's about to graduate from high school or graduate from college. Maybe you're about to graduate from high school or graduate from college. Maybe you're looking at what's next for you is college or graduate school. Maybe you're about to get married, you got a wedding, or your son or your daughter, or grandson, or granddaughter, you got a wedding in the future, or maybe your brother or sister, older brother, older sister, maybe you're about to have a baby. It's like, wow, that's that's you know, how do I get ready for that? Maybe it's another baby, and another baby can mean a lot of things. If you have two, another baby That's three. If you have four. Anyway, so this can mean a lot of things, okay? (laughs) So you got that coming up. Um, Maybe you're about to start a new job or you're looking forward to a new job, maybe a new school. Maybe you're on the verge of becoming empty nesters, you know, and you're, you're so excited about that, you think, and then you all look at each other. It's like, Can we handle that much time alone, you know, so it's like you're excited about it. Um, Some of you, retirement, and I don't mean retirement like in the next three months, but the next big thing for you. In other words, you've kind of gotten to the empty nest thing and the the next thing. So for all of us, hopefully for all of you, there's something coming up that's a next that you're actually looking forward to. You see it coming and you're excited and you're a little bit stressed about it. And that makes perfect sense. Let me explain why. Whatever is next, let me show you this little stair step. Whatever's next means a transition. A transition always means change. And even if it's a good change, it results in stress. That transitions, all transitions, are always stressful, even the ones that you look forward to. I mean, remember the last time you had the conversation with the mother of a bride to be? Remember how excited she was? and how stressed out she was all at the same time, right? Remember some of you, the first, that day that you took your, your firstborn child to school for the first time? You know, and that backpack was about as big as they were, and you pointed them in the direction, maybe it was an older brother or sister, or younger brother or sister, and sister, and, and you sort of point them in the direction, and you're looking so forward to your kids going to school. It's what they're supposed to do. If they didn't go, that's a problem, but even though you're looking forward to it, it's what's next, it's still so stressful. Um, You know, in your family, just like our family, there's some stories that are kind of like the legendary stories that you share among family members when you run out of things to talk about. And so, one of them in our family is the story of my wife, Sandra's brother, Jack, her younger brother, Jack, going to first grade, the very first day of first grade. It's like one of those stories. So, you know, his parents were nervous. Of course, Jackie and Bob were nervous, and they get him there and they sort of put him out of the car, and and he heads over, you know, wobbling around and goes to school. Of course, you're nervous that whole day. How's it going? How's it going? Then you pick him up and get him home. And so they ask him, they said, Jack, you know, how was the first day of school? And here's what he said. They wrote it down. He said, there were too many children. gets better. And I didn't learn to read. (laughs) You told me if I went to school, I would learn how to read and I don't know how to read. And so I'm not going back. Which means they had a second stressful day of trying to get Jack you know, involved in elementary school. So here's the question, are there really things, are there things that we can do now to prepare for what's next? I mean, is this even possible? And the reason I asked the question or posed the question is because uh, you know, when, when you think about what's next, it's like you're, you're looking forward to it, but since you've never experienced that exactly, can you really even get ready? And the answer is yes, you really can prepare for what's next, that's what we're gonna talk about for the next few weeks. But during these few weeks, as we talk about how to prepare for what's next, there are two things that you have to keep in mind because these are the things that if you don't keep in mind, you'll lose a little bit of perspective and these things throw people off constantly. In fact, you'll be able to identify with at least one of these two things. The first thing is this, that regardless of what else you're packing for whatever's next, for that new job, for the new school, for the new move, for the new city, uh, marriage, you know, whatever it is, whatever, whatever you're packing, just remember, along with everything else that you, that you're packing for what's next, you pack you, okay? This is really important. Wherever you go, there you are. Okay, this may be the most important thing you hear for a long time. Wherever you go, there you are. And here's why that's important. In our minds, we fool ourselves and trick ourselves into thinking, well, once I get out of the house, once I get into school, once i 'm married, once we have kids, once the kids grow up, once the kids are gone, we think somehow a new view and a new do is going to be a new you that somehow once i 'm in a different environment, different perspective, and I kind of find myself and remake myself and transform myself a new view, a new do does not result in a new you you are still the same old girl you used to be. You are still the same old guy you used to be. You're still the same. Bob Seger said a long time ago, you're still the same, right? Same ethics, same morals, same strength, same weaknesses, right? Same. Basically you're just still the same. You just took yourself with you. Okay. Second thing to keep in mind. Okay. Because it gets tricky is that there is no necessary correlation. There is no necessary correlation between knowing what's next and being prepared for what's next. There's no necessary correlation between knowing what's next. Here comes graduation, here comes marriage, here comes first child, second child, here comes a new job, here comes a new city. There's no correlation, necessary correlation between knowing what's next and being prepared for what's next. Now, if, if you don't think that's true, you know, the proof is every single Saturday and Friday and Sundays as well, but most Saturdays all over this country, all over the world, young men and women get together and they get all dressed up and get their families there and they take these vows. And they say, I do. And all of us who are a few years on the other side of I do know that I do doesn't mean you can. (laughs) It just means you plan to, but you don't know if you can do or not. So you're having to can do, right? But there's, but there's this thing in me that's like, well, since I know what's coming next, I'm prepared for what's coming next. And that's not the case at all. And by the way, not only are you not sure you can do, you're not so sure he can do and she can do either. And the point being that way better than a promise, way better than a plan is preparation. That preparation for what's next, preparation for what's next, trumps a plan and trumps a promise every single time. And that's why this series is so extraordinarily, extraordinarily important. If you've got something, Coming up next. Now, the good news is we get a lot of help, and today we're going to get a little help from a guy named James. James had a famous brother. His brother was Jesus. And so, in our New Testaments, there is a document written by James, the brother of Jesus, and he weighs in on how to prepare for what's next. In fact, at the end of what he writes, and this is from the first century, at the end of what he writes, he makes this promise. This is the tail end. This is where we're going to end up today. He says, If you do, What I've just suggested that you do, you will be blessed in what you do. If you do what I'm about to tell you to do in the next season, you will be blessed in what you do. There's something you can do in this season that will set you up for success in the next season. Now, this is, as you're going to find out in the next few minutes, this is a really big deal for me personally. And I'll tell you why. Um, When I began to teach, you know, many, many years ago, I love this passage because because of the illustration in this passage, I love this passage. But when I was much younger and would teach this passage, I would say, you know what? James, the brother of Jesus says, the New Testament says, the Bible says, therefore we ought to do this. But now having gone through many, many transitions in my personal life, and having had the privilege of being taught when I was young what I'm about to teach you that James teaches all of us, and having experienced the benefit of, I can tell you from personal experience that what James says at the end is absolutely true. You will be blessed in what you do if you do what he suggests that we do. So this is a really Really big deal. He wrote this in the first century, brother of Jesus. It's kind of cool to know that James was not one of Jesus' disciples. In fact, James didn't really, James kind of thought his brother was crazy. And then when his brother died, he thought probably, what a waste. (laughs) And then he met his brother on the other side of the crucifixion and went, "Uh uh-oh, I was wrong. And James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James believed that his brother was his Lord. What would it take for your brother to convince you? Okay, you get the point. So anything James says, we should take seriously. So here's what he says, and these are familiar words, perhaps if you were raised in church, he says this, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do not merely listen to, and the reason he says listen to is back in the first century, there was well, not a Bible. People did not have personal copies of scripture. And the only way they would ever know about what scripture taught, they had to listen to it. They would go to homes and small groups and homes, you know, around Jerusalem and Galilee and wherever there was a church. And if they were Jewish, they were accustomed to going either to the temple or perhaps if they lived far away from Judea or Galilee, they would go to a synagogue. So they were accustomed to sitting in some sort of environment and listening to someone teach the scripture. Now for us, we could change this word. We could say, do not merely read the word and so deceive yourself. So here's here's the trick. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, do not fool yourself into thinking that if you've heard it, it's gonna make any difference. If you think hearing it makes a difference, if you think listening to it makes a difference, you deceive yourselves. And this is a big deal, especially for us church people, and especially for any kind of religious person, even if you're not a Christian, you're some other part of some other religion. There is something in us, and I get this, there's something in us that thinks since I was in the room, I'm a better person. Since I showed up for small group, I'm a better person. Since I have participated in the conversation, I'm a better person. Since I've been to church you know, three weeks in a row, I, I'm, there's something, I'm a better person. And it's true, it's great to be in a circle, it's great to be in a row. James says, don't allow that habit you have of listening and hearing, or maybe even reading, don't allow it to deceive you. Because hearing and listening doesn't get the job done. You'll give yourself credit. Well, I was in church. I was in church. I don't miss church. I rarely miss church. I rarely miss small group. Great, great, great. James says, but don't fall into the trap of thinking that's what makes the difference. Well, what makes the difference? He says, I'm glad you asked. Do what it says. It's not enough to listen, it's not enough to hear, it's not enough to be convicted. And one of the things that us Americans, and I'm probably Europeans as well, but just speaking for Americans, and I think a lot of Canadians, the same way. There's something in us that when we're in an environment like this, or we're watching at home, and somebody like me says something very convicting, or that's, you know, kind of gets right up in your face, and there's something in you that's like, oh, you're right. We confuse that, well, we don't confuse it. That for us, that's kind of a religious experience, In fact, for some of you, the point of going to church is to feel bad about yourself because you feel like that's a religious experience. Today was great. I felt terrible about myself. And since I felt terrible about myself, I think I get credit with God. See you next week. James is going where did you get that? The goal isn't to feel bad about yourself. The goal isn't to hear. The goal isn't to know I ought to, I ought to, I ought to. James says, you need to do something with what you've heard. So he says this, anyone, that would be you and me, anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says, anyone that listens to the word, but does not do what it says. And then he gives us one of the greatest illustrations, maybe the best illustration in all the New Testament, maybe the 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 entire Bible. Anyone who hears, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says, this is so amazing, is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself or herself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Here's his point. He says to listen to scripture or to listen to the truth taught and to not do anything with it is like getting up in the morning, looking in the mirror going, oh, that's horrible. And then getting dressed and going to school, going to work, going to coffee, going to whatever you're going to and forgetting what you saw in the mirror. When we look in the mirror, we are reminded that something needs to be done. He says, if you look into the scripture or you hear the scripture and don't do anything with what you hear, it's like seeing something but not doing something, which is something none of you would ever do when it comes to a real mirror. When you see something, you do something. And you know why? Because a mirror requires a response, doesn't it? In fact, I know how long each one of you stands in front of the mirror every single morning of the week. I do. You stand there until it gets better. That's how long (laughs) you stand there. You do not leave. In fact, some of you thought it was better. You were ready to go. You're at the front door or the back door and you glance in the mirror and you're like, It's not quite better enough. And you were late for school. You were late for work. You were late for an appointment. You were late for breakfast. You were late for coffee because it wasn't quite better enough. And you went back and you changed something you had on or you went back and you fixed something or you pulled it back and you tied it back and you decided this is a hat day. This is hat day, okay? Because that's what a mirror does. A mirror requires a response. So tomorrow, this is what all of us are gonna do. Tomorrow, we're gonna get up and we're gonna look in the mirror and we're gonna feel convicted about what we see. And then we're gonna do something about it. Now, here's the interesting thing. And this is true for all of us. This isn't a Christian thing. This is just a people thing, okay? Here's the thing. Getting your hair right has far less to do with the direction and the quality of your life than getting your behavior right. Getting your makeup right has far less to do with the direction and the quality of your life than getting your behavior right. Getting what you have on right and getting your outfit all coordinated and, you know, looking good is important, but it has far less to do with the direction and quality of your life than getting your behavior right. In fact, let's just be honest on the day or the night or the evening or the weekend or the week that you created your greatest regret. I bet you looked good. I mean, that was part of the problem, right? You look too good. And you saw somebody else that looked too good. I mean, I mean, everything looked good and you created a regret. In fact, chances are, even if it's not a relationship regret, when you, cre- when you did the dumbest thing you've ever done, when you started that season of your life, you wish you could go back and relive and unlive and redo. I guarantee you, you looked just fine. It had nothing to do with, because you know why? That morning, the morning of your greatest regret, you looked in the mirror on the wall and that mirror required a response And you responded, and yet you made a decision or a series of decisions that you knew you shouldn't make, which is the equivalent of looking in the mirror and going, I know what I should do, I'm just not going to do it. Now here's the interesting thing, because we deceive ourselves. This is why this is such a powerful teaching. We deceive ourselves. No one gets credit. No one gets credit for looking in the mirror in the real world. In other words, if you get up tomorrow and you look in the mirror and you think, Wow, that is horrible. That's horrible. And then you just get dressed and go to work and your boss comes up to you and says, hey, there is no way you can go in there and talk to clients looking like that. And you say to your boss, but I looked in the mirror. Your boss will look at you like you're crazy. Why? Because in the real world, we don't get credit for looking in the mirror, right? Right? But in the realm of our personal behavior, in the realm of our personal development, we do that all the time. We sit under teaching, we read books, we listen to somebody say something and we think, oh, oh, uh, we say, in fact, if some Christians would kind of have this thing, we even do it out loud, we go, oh, mm, uh, mm, mm. I have a friend who was a brand new Christian years ago. He called it the Christian moo. He said, what is the Christian moo? Why do they do that? I didn't even know what he was talking about. I said, what are you talking about? He said, sometimes when you're preaching, people go, mmm, mm. He said, do I have to do that? I said, yeah, if you're gonna be a Christian, you gotta do that. That's, that's just part of the thing. But there's something in us that's like, oh, that's so convicting. Well, what are you gonna do? Well, nothing, just come back next week for another dose of conviction. Isn't that the point? And James says, if that's your pattern, if that's your pattern, you are deceiving yourself. It's obvious what you should do. You're just not doing it. Now, here's the thing. If you are in the habit, this is how it connects to our series, if you are in the habit of seeing something but not doing something, if you're in the habit of seeing something but doing nothing now, guess what? When you move into that next season, when you are a part or you step into what's next, you will see something and do nothing then as well because a habit now of doing nothing with what you hear and what you see will be the habit you carry with you into the next season, which means you won't be prepared. But James doesn't stop there, fortunately. He says, but, big contrast, but. And now he introduces the habit. Now he introduces the first habit we're gonna look at in this series that prepares us, that prepares you, that prepares me for what's next. And this is so fabulous. He says, but whoever, again, that's all of us, but whoever looks intently, and the Greek term here, the idea here is you're walking along and you notice something and you stop and you get down on one knee and you gaze intently. You look at this thing until you figure out what it is. This isn't a glance, this is a stop and stare. He says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law. And I have to explain this, but this is so incredible. When Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, one day someone asked him, Jesus, what are the, what are the, what's the greatest commandment? And this was a common question for first century Jews. And first century Jews all had the same answer to this question. If you ask a first century Jew, what's the greatest commandment? Generally speaking, they were taught to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or some variation of that Old Testament idea. So they asked Jesus this question and Jesus created a new idea. He said, in fact, my friend Scott McKnight calls this the Jesus Creed because Jesus created this. They said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, well, the greatest commandment is love, the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And of course, everybody's nodding. And he went, and, everybody stopped, and your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest two, not greatest two like number one and number two, like in sequence, the greatest two, they go together. Well, that was like a game changer, showstopper. I mean, you just took 631 commands and reduced it to two, but he wasn't done. This is so powerful. On the last night of his life before he was crucified, he gathers with his disciples. They've heard him teach this so many times. and He says, guys, tonight I'm giving you a new command to which they thought, wow, well we have 631, so does this mean we have 632? Or you reduced all those down to two, so now are we going from two to three? To which Jesus would have said, no, we're going from two to one. And Jesus did something that was so heretical, so blasphemous, if it hadn't been their last night together, they would probably have all gotten up and walked out, except Judas had already gotten up and walked out, so they're kinda wondering what's going on. And Jesus says, here it is, from now on, I want you to love one another the way I have loved you. These are your marching orders. If you forget everything else, if you forget 631, if you forget two, I wanna, I just wanna, this is the one command, this is my command. This is the law of Jesus. You are to love one another, not the way you've been loved, not even the way you wanna be loved. That's the golden rule, this is the platinum rule. You are to love one another the way I have loved you. And no doubt they thought to themselves those occasions when Jesus loved them well, they had no idea because a few hours later he would be arrested. He would die for their sin. He would rise from the dead. And he would say, now that's what I'm talking about. So when James says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law, he's not talking about 631 commandments. I don't even think he was talking about two. I think he boiled it down as Jesus did to this one idea. The law says, the thing that we're gonna look at intently, the thing we pause and stare at is this idea that I'm supposed to love you and I'm supposed to respond to you and I'm supposed to love you and I'm supposed to respond to you the way that God in Christ responded to me. And then James says something incredible. He says, and when you do that, and when I do that, we will experience freedom. That The promise of gazing intently into Jesus' perfect law and doing it, not just memorizing it, not just groaning on the inside, but doing it is the promise of freedom. That seeing and doing now, listening and doing now results in freedom later. Now, the reason I'm so passionate about this and the reason I just would love to grab everybody by the collar and say, you just, you just gotta, you know, if you don't trust James, trust me. If you don't trust me, trust James. It's such a big deal. It's because when I was a kid, this is, this is the kind of stuff I was taught. In fact, i will give you a couple examples. When I was a kid, I was taught something that I've been trying to teach some of you for 20 years. And, you know, a lot of you have latched onto this. Others of you just still don't trust me. And, and I understand that. I, I have people who do what I do, do crazy things sometimes. But when I was a kid, I was taught, and these are my words, not the words they used, because I had to you know, make it memorable for me. I was taught, this is how you manage your money. Give first, live second. I mean, give first, save second, live on the rest. You give, you save, and you live. Now, you know, when I was making $3.82 an hour at Winn-Dixie when I was 16 years old, you know, and the whole idea of taking a percentage of my hard-earned money and giving it to the church, because that's what we, that you know, we didn't have lots of nonprofits back then, you just give it to the church, I mean, that, that didn't seem very liberating. And then when I started working at the plaque company, you know, when I started working at the plaque company where I'm sitting tight and burning my fingers and staying up all hours, you know, trying to get all these orders ready, the whole idea of just giving a percentage of my money off the top, give first, save second, live on the rest, that didn't seem liberating. In fact, liberating sounds more like live, spend whatever I have on me. If there's any left over, save. And if I really feel guilty or meet somebody who's really in need, And I can't drive off before they get to my window. Maybe I'll give something, okay? Or maybe on Christmas, or maybe some special, you know, offering at church. That seemed liberating, but I decided to do what I was taught to do. And so, from the very beginning, I've always given first, saved second, and lived on the rest. And do you know why we do this? The reason we give. It's not so we can get. In fact, if you go to a church where where, where the pastor says, you know, give the church money and God will give you tenfold. Let me tell you what to do. You need to walk up to your pastor and say, look, uh, why don't you give me ten and see if God will give you a hundred. Just see how that goes with your pastor, okay? That has, listen, look up here. The reason, do you know why we give? We give, this is, I mean, this is complicated. I'll go real slow. You may want to write this down. We give money away because it helps other people like, "Oh man, how did, did you come up with that by yourself? Yeah, We give our money away because it helps people. And why do we give money away? Because your heavenly Father, come on, sent his son to give his life away. And Jesus said, "Now, I want you to do for others what I've done for you." So you give first, save, second, live on the rest. Well, you know what You know what the result of this has been after years and years and years and years and years and years, and years of doing this? Financial freedom. Because when you live like this, you stay out of debt. You don't even have to decide to stay out of debt. You just stay out of debt. This so, this so creates a template for how you manage all your money at the end of the day, you end up with financial freedom. James says, that's what I'm talking about. And do you know why it made such a difference in my life? Because I heard it, because I did it. You say, Andy, are you bragging? No, I'm not bragging, and here's why. You brag about things that you've done that nobody else has done and nobody else can do. I'm just telling you what I've done that every single one of you could do. Every one of you ought to do it because it's a demonstration of God's love for you through Christ. How about, you know, this one? We all heard this one forgive. You know, we're supposed to forgive. I mean, this is not, this isn't liberating. In fact, forgiveness feels like you're being punished. It's like I'm being punished and I'm letting the guilty person go free. If I forgive, I'm letting you off, which means I don't get paid back and I'm letting you go, that's not liberating. But for anybody listening or anybody watching who's ever really forgiven somebody for something they did that really hurt you or injured you, you know this is true, don't you? Forgiveness leads to liberty. Forgiveness is liberating. And why do we forgive? Because the Bible tells us to, no. We forgive because God in Christ forgave us and we are to do for others what God through Christ did for us, it's that simple. How about this one? This was a tough when growing up, sexual purity. It's like, that's not liberty. I mean, that's the opposite of liberty, right? And, 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 and by the way, do you know why we should be sexually pure? Do you know why we should be so careful in how we manage our sexuality? It has nothing to do with getting God to love you or to you know not punish you. It has everything to do with other people. Because when you exercise sexual self-control, do you know what you're doing? You're honoring someone else. And not only are you honoring them, you're honoring every single one of their future relationships. By not becoming a regret, by not becoming a regret, you are honoring their next relationship and you are honoring them. And Jesus said, that's all I'm asking you to do is I want you to do for others what I have done for you. I want you to love the way I've loved. And besides, in the end of the day, you know what you discover? You discover that sexual purity actual paves the way, actually paves the way to intimacy. The sexual purity paves the way to intimacy. There is a payoff, there is liberty, there is freedom. Because eventually everybody understands whether you admit it or not, and this is where our culture needs such a wake-up call, that exclusivity, exclusivity, exclusivity is what leads to romance, not experience. Experience does not lead to romance. Exclusivity leads to romance. And where there's exclusivity and where there's romance in a relationship, there is liberty. And I could go on and on and on and on, and James is right. That when we stop and stare and gaze and find our reflection in the mirror of this incredible law of liberty, and we stare at it and gaze at it long enough to decide what we need to do about it, and then we do something with it, it makes a difference. Because looking and making the adjustments now is what creates liberty later. And you know why? come on, because the seasons of our life are connected. That's why when you say, well, you know what, this is what I'm doing now, but when I move, no, they're connected. Well, you know, this is what I'm doing now, but once I'm married, no, they're connected. Well, this is what I'm doing now, but once I get out of the house and get to school, no, they're connected. So here's what he says, the whole verse, but Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard or read or listened to, not forgetting, not forgetting, not forgetting, but doing it, then the payoff, then the promise, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, there's a little Greek thing going on here that I just wanna make sure you understand because this is so important. James is not saying that what you do will be blessed. It's way better than that. What James is saying here is that you personally will be blessed in the doing. You will be, and the word blessed simply means happy, that you will be happy, you will be fulfilled in the doing of what God has called you to do. The payoff is what happens in you, in your response to what God has called you to do. In other words, the habit of doing, the habit of doing, will make you happy, that there is personal fulfillment in responding to what we see in the mirror. Isn't it true in the morning when you wake up and you're a wreck, and then by the time you're done, it's like, all right, you know? I mean, isn't there personal fulfillment when you respond to what you see? Isn't it awful when you forget to respond to what you see? In the same way James says, look, there is extraordinary fulfillment. There is extraordinary happiness. There is a blessing in responding to what we see in the mirror of God's word, and in fact, Many of you who may this may be new to you first time. It's like, I didn't get it that way growing up. I didn't understand it. I'm telling you, you are sitting around. In fact, you may be sitting with someone right now who would say, you know what, that's my story. When I finally surrendered my life to Christ, when I finally said, God, I'm gonna look and I'm gonna make adjustments. I don't care. I'm just going for this. You ask them, they would tell you, there's extraordinary, it's not that everything turned out fine. It's not that everything they did was blessed. They would tell you there was something so fulfilling when I began to do what I knew I needed to do. Just the process filled me up. And that's why this habit is such great preparation for what's next. Because being a doer now, being a doer now is preparation for being a doer later. Even when the do's change. Because here's the trick. You think, well, once I get to college, it's a different season, it's you know, it's a bunch of different do's. Yeah, but if you're not doing now, you won't do then. Well, I'm single and you know, once I'm married, all the rules change and it's a bunch of different do's. Yeah, but if you're not doing the do's of single now, you're not gonna do the do's of marriage later. Who do you think you are? Again, a new view, a new do does not make a new you. You're still the same person you need to be. This is why the best preparation, the best preparation for what's next is to do what God has called you to do in this season, because it sets you up to do what God will call you to do in the season. That follows. Now, again, I'm so passionate about this because I was brought up, and like some of you weren't, I realize, but I was brought up with very, very practical Bible teaching. I mean, when my dad would open the scripture and teach the scripture, there was always a do, and it was so clear. One of the things that he said over and over and over when I was growing up is obey God and leave all the consequences to him. Obey God and leave all the consequences to him. In other words, you just do the doing and don't try to control the outcomes and don't worry about the outcomes. You 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 just do, and then you look into the next season, get to the next season, and you'll see what God did. He would say this, God takes full responsibility. This is such a big idea. God takes full responsibility for the life that is wholly devoted to him. That is, you gaze, and you make the adjustments, and then you wait and see what God will do. My dad's uh, father died when my dad was 17 months old, so we never knew his, um, his biological father. And, um, his grandfather, um, his father's father had a big impact on him. And he, my dad, I grew up hearing all these things that my um, great grandfather told my dad (laughs) and the one that, you know, I'll never forget. And my dad probably told me this, started telling me this when I was like eight or nine or 10, I was super young. He would say, Andy, my granddad told me, he said, Charlie, if God tells you to run your head through a brick wall, you start running and trust God to make a hole. I heard that my whole life growing up. If God tells you to run your head through a brick wall, you just start running and trust God to make a hole. Well, you know what James is saying? He's saying, look, sometimes what you hear and what you read will make sense. Sometimes what you hear and what you read will seem totally impractical. Sometimes what you read and what you hear will sound so old fashioned. Sometimes what you hear and what you read will just seem like it is you know, some other generation's content or some other generation's application. But if God tells you to do it, you just start running. And when you step across the line into that next season, there will be liberty. You will be blessed in what you do. And so I'm just telling you, this season of my life and this stage of my life have gone through a bunch of transitions. I am such a thoroughly satisfied customer. And I, my temptation is to say, I can't imagine where I would be if it hadn't been for this teaching. <laughs> the problem is I can not imagine where I would be. I have a feeling I know exactly where I would be if I had just been a hearer only. And the reason I say that, and I bet you can identify with this, some of you, is my greatest regrets in life, and I have them just like you do. My greatest regrets in life are all associated with hearing and not doing. And your greatest regrets in life are associated with hearing and not doing. Your greatest uh, regrets in life are associated with somebody tried to tell you and you didn't want to hear it so you wouldn't have to do it. So if you're not doing now, you probably won't do later, which means you won't be prepared for what's next because doing not hearing is what makes all the difference. Now, the interesting thing, and this shouldn't shock us, is Jesus taught the same thing. But he taught his, and and his version was a parable, a very familiar parable that I'm just going to read real quickly just the first half of it, because many of you know this. Here's how Jesus said the very same thing. Therefore, anyone, which is all of us, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that is, anybody who hears and does is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And some of us remember the hand motions in the song, don't we? And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had its foundation on the rock. You know what Jesus was teaching you and me? That the way you lay a solid foundation for your life is by being a doer, not a hearer. And when things get tough and when things get difficult and when things aren't working out, your life will not fall down. One of the heartbreaks of my life as a pastor is when I talk to people or hear about people, I get lots of mail and email or somebody comes to our church and talks to one of our other pastors or leaders. And, and if this is your story, come on in. We're, this is in no way that's telling you that we're not open and welcome to, to your stories, but I'm just telling you the heartbreak is the stories that could have been avoided that somebody wouldn't do, even though they'd heard. James is pretty clear, if you'll be a doer now, you'll be a doer later. So two questions and we're done. What are you doing now that you shouldn't be doing that you tell yourself, well, I won't do that later? What are you doing now that you shouldn't be doing and you're telling yourself, well, once I, when I, when we, once we. What are you doing now that you shouldn't be doing, that you've told yourself, well, in that next season, I'll stop? Or hear about this one, what are you not doing now? What are you not doing now that you should be doing? And you tell yourself that you'll start later. Can I just be real direct? James says you're deceiving yourself. Jesus says your life may come tumbling down. Have you ever seen someone's life come tumbling down? We all have. Do you know what all the lives that came tumbling down have in common? They knew. They'd heard. They'd listened. Somebody had said something. And you know what else they have in common? The people who love those folks the most saw it happening and couldn't do anything to stop it. And every single person whose life came tumbling down at some point along the way was confronted with a mirror that required a response. And they said, yeah, I ought to. I should. I know I need to think about that. Yeah, somebody, yeah, I think you're right. But not now. Not now. Not now. So, my friends, doing, not hearing, is what makes the difference. And doing, not hearing, will determine if you're prepared for what's next. So, what do you need to do? Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving this ancient text that it's as if it was written yesterday. It's as if it was written for all of us. And Father, for those here today, they're not Christians necessarily, but this is curious. This lands with them like it lands with all of us. And would you give us the courage, and that's what we need, Father, we need courage. Would you give us the courage to stare intently into that very thing that makes us the most uncomfortable until we're willing to change? Would you give us the courage to lock in on that truth, that thing our mamas told us, our dad always told us, that one verse that keeps rattling around in our head, that advice that somebody we respect gave us? Would you give us the courage to just gaze intently and just keep our focus there until we are willing to do something about what we have seen? And so on behalf of all of us, I just confess that your word requires a response. Would you give us the courage to respond? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week for part two of Pack Your Bags.